podcast that investigates the experience of self, the events that have shaped our world, the people that we have become, by focusing on the person first. Andrew, what's your earliest memory of somebody that was good at life? I think my earliest, earliest memory is of uh, my youngest brother arriving in the world. And I was delighted that he'd arrived. He's three years younger than me (laughs) because he bought me a little uh, matchbox blue car. And I was absolutely thrilled with that at that time. And he's still my, my little kid brother. So that was... That was a big moment and a very, very early moment. I must have been about three. But So your parents gave you him and a little blue car? Yes, exactly. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> but how was he um, you know, kind of good at life? As uh, When was your earliest memory of seeing him? Presumably, though, you were experiencing some of those parts of your life ahead of him. Yeah, I mean, I suppose uh, naturally, uh, as, as the elder brother, which yeah. I am, you, you take an interest in your sibling's progress. Um, there is a stage in life, particularly when you go into secondary school, when you want nothing to do with one yeah, another. Yeah. And I think that's fairly common, and I see it with my own kids now, because yeah. they've got a similar uh, space in terms of their, their years. Um, but I, I admire my brother immensely, because he's a very talented musician, mm. something that's quite close to your heart. Yeah. He still performs, yeah. um, and he's, uh, but he's also an educator as yeah. well. So he manages to combine those two different roles. How was he your earliest memory? He sounds like somebody who's good at life that you admire, but was he your earliest memory? I, I, I think it was, actually. Yes, I mean, there were other early... Uh, I mean, if we go on, say, for three or four years, there are lots of other memories that I had. Yeah. Um, but I, that's the, the, the one that I remember most distinctly at a really young age. That's really interesting. I'm thinking back... I didn't, I didn't remember life without my sister. She's two years younger than me. But when I think of that question, I think of somebody who maybe when you're like seven, eight or nine and you have like a free conversation with a, it could be like a, 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 an uncle or a parent's friend and they take an interest in you and you look at them from outside the prism of your family. Because family, they do love one another. Oh, yeah, you, would, you hope they love one another and they encourage one another. Every now and again, someone kind of pokes in from the outside. Who was your earliest member of somebody who kind of came from the outside of your family and you thought, oh, that's a new type of person? So there were quite a few, actually, because um, particularly, I don't know, in my when I was about nine or ten. Yeah. And um, we had a lot of visitors to our house because my father was a scientist. Yeah. And he had all of these brainiac scientist friends from around the world and and one of my distinct memories is a Canadian who would come and stay with us I don't know at least once or twice every few years and he would sit in the uh, as it's euphemistically called the smallest room in the house and smoke cigars (laughs) and chew peanuts and they were always a little but not swallow not swallow but he was a he was a very charismatic individual he was a very very large man with a big beard and he had been a bomber pilot in the second world war and i just thought he was very very cool a little bit um scary yeah but a, a, an amazing individual and and there were a few people like that because my father was quite a lot younger than them um, oh, and, there really? was, and there was another individual that he uh, used to work with 
who again I thought was very charismatic, a guy called Jess Cross. Yeah. And incidentally, his son was the first person to give um, uh, Jezzo, as in Top Gear, a job on, I think it was Performance, performance Car Magazine. <laughs> but anyway, Jess Cross as well was a very uh, flamboyant individual who was a former Spitfire ace, I think, which... Uh, anyway, he was, he was an interesting guy as well. And I remember driving home on one occasion when Jess overtook us in his car very, very quickly, as he would do as a former Spitfire pilot, <laughs> and put the V sign up in the back window, <laughs> which I thought was very cool, being was, eight or nine. That still whatever. sounds cool. Was it like a racing car? It was something quick. Uh, maybe it was so quick that I, I failed to spot it. I am a bit of a, a car nut, but I mean, really? no, I can't remember what that was. So growing up around those types of people, mm. that, that was fairly common because your dad moved, in, he was a scientist, but he moved yeah. in circles of people who were kind of at the top of their their industry, was yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely, at the top of their game, yeah. Why um, were they hanging out with him? Um, because, well, my father worked with them. They were colleagues, international colleagues. So oh, we were, right. I mean, both my brother and I have discussed this sort of over the years. You realise how lucky we were to have been exposed to so many interesting people from different backgrounds yeah. as well. And they, they had all kinds of uh, yeah, experiences. That sounds fantastic. So how did that shape your idea of um, what success was or what a good life was? Did you have a concept when you were a kid? I probably did. I mean, it's, it's difficult to recall. I think I was most interested in just playing cricket, really, most of the time <laughs> yeah. at, at a very, very young age. I, um, I think it was only later that I became a little bit more philosophical about these things. What about the practicality of getting a, a job? Like when you were around these types of individuals, did they talk to you about what you wanted to do, young Andrew? No, categorically no. No? <laughs> and I wouldn't have understood what it was that they were doing anyway. That's fine. Uh, do you remember the earliest memory of someone talking to you about what you wanted to do in your life? It, it probably would have been in um, early sixth form. Yeah. That late. And, oh uh, and I was thinking about various things. And I, I knew what I liked yeah, and um, and we'll possibly come on to this later. But I was doing an awful lot of writing at a very early age. Yeah, don't they? Ask, I mean, in my school, they asked me at like fourth. When you do your pre GCSEs, what are they called? Oh, SATs. Oh, I don't know. I did terribly at all of it, but you know, <laughs> there was a process <laughs> I was involved in, and I had to go and talk to somebody. And he said, "Right, what do you want to do for work experience?" I said, I have no idea. Do you have any suggestions? And they said, we have a relationship with the bank, State Street. You can go and work there, be an analyst. I was like, fine. I went and uh, they were all doing like Excel documents. And I was like, I just hung out there for a week. All I remember was cheese sandwiches. Yeah, that's all I remember. It was like I had Best no intention, <laughs> no memory of it, no, no passion at that age of anything I felt completely disconnected with a future it was like the, the, it was like a train passing and I was I'd already missed it in my head mm -hmm. so I'm curious to see when people turn around and think I have to do a job at some point even if it's after a university or something like that that's the type of person I'd like to be mm -hmm. so what was yours like did you just, were you just in cricket and writing yeah I was interested in cricket very very interested in cricket uh, probably more interested in writing and I did a, an awful lot for the, know, the school magazine. Um, and I, I was lucky enough to 
win a competition, a writing competition for sixth formers. And so I was 17 when that happened, and it was sponsored by Barclays Bank when Barclays still had money. Yeah. And they took it. The winning 50 travelled all the way around Europe, culminating in a stay in a palatial palace in Venice. And that was was amazing. And that sort of, as a 17-year-old, I travelled to the south of France and various places with my parents but I'd never had anything like that. That was, that was amazing. And the other 49 people, what were they like? They were... Uh, same um, age? Of the same age. Oh, so, well, some, awesome. of them, some of them were a year older than me, so I was one of the younger ones, but it was yeah. quite an eclectic bunch. And they were all very talented in their own way. Did and, you make any uh, buddies? Yeah. No, one of them I actually still know, who went on um, to become a poet. Oh, fantastic. fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah, it was interesting. It was a very interesting mix. So what was there? What was the kind of the um, what was the thing you wrote for Barclays? Was it a poem or was it a short story? No, I wrote um, quite a long article. Actually, oh. <laughs> what was it studying? Or, or it, looking? Was, uh, it was to do with again, I forget, but it was it was to do with some aspect of economics. Got it. Okay, but, uh, fine. Because yeah, I was doing economics A level at the time, uh-huh. and the Barclays sponsored the whole thing. They did, yeah. So there might be different categories. Like some were maybe. Wanted poetry in I, some category. You, you could, yeah, no, yeah. you could do that. So it didn't necessarily have to have an economic theme. Yeah. Well, I wonder if they still do anything like that. They don't. Probably <laughs> not. They really don't. They really don't. I mean, it's... Uh, that sounds like a great idea. Different time. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. So looking now, zooming straight ahead, mm. and you look back on your life thus far, what would you say would be the measurements of a successful life? Uh, or what is a good life, as I think Cicero said. Um, yeah, I mean, successful, is, it's, mm. you know, I've grown to not like that word. It mm. seems to predetermine something that not everyone can agree on. Mm. Uh, what's your take on it? I think um, I, there are a lot of angles, I think, to that question in the sense that, and it's a truism, but good health is incredibly important, mm. which is something my grandfather used to say to me, and I used to think, yeah, what are you talking about? That's, of course. Yeah. But, of course, as you get older, it yeah. becomes more and more important. I'm sadly, probably like a lot of people, two or three of my very, very good friends have died over the years, one at a, a very young age, 30. And Gosh. so that was, uh, yeah, that brought me up short. How? Um, so the one that died when he was about 30, um, he was a very talented sportsman, worked for Saatchi and Saatchi. He got a brain tumour, which came completely out of the blue. Okay. And there was literally nothing, nothing anyone could do about it. Yeah. And I remember um, wheeling him into the Royal Free Hospital so he'd have his radiation zap um, and then taking him to one of the East End pubs. I can't remember which one it was now, the Grapes or somewhere like that for a slap-up meal afterwards just to, you know, break the ice of it. But he was remarkably stoical about it. He never, ever complained. And, uh, yeah, that was... I still feel that loss now. It was, it was... That was very, very difficult. And then more recently, another very, very good friend of mine um, also passed away at the age of 45. Uh, he was working for GAM, actually, at that time. And again, it was he'd got he'd got the most mild form of cancer that you can get. Yeah. But nevertheless, he wasn't able to beat it. So I, things like that do make you yeah, stop and think a little bit, and you realise how 
ephemeral life is really it's quick it's it's moving very very quickly so the corollary of that is you've got to make the most of of your time while yeah. you're here yeah does it um make you reflect on the way you thought about the world and how it's perhaps more fungible or transparent or malleable or it's kind of whatever you want it to be in your mind. Your, your mind, do you know what I mean? When yeah, I do. You grow up yeah. and people, t- I always remember the people thinking that the world is very much here and it doesn't, I used to feel like it doesn't necessarily need you here, but yeah. <laughs> we're, we're fine, we're cracking yeah. on. Yeah. We've got big business, we've got lots of buildings around, everyone's got a purpose, everyone's busy doing their stuff and you've got to kind of, you know, shout to be noticed and to fit into it. Um, but in actual fact, it's not, kind of you know as much it's it's easier to have an effect on the world than i think i i Mm. used to think and also that's how everyone else that's how some people might think about it but it doesn't have to be how you think about it and i think death is a big um you know light on that Mm. you know is that does that change were you around the same age about 30 when that happened yeah 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 it was uh, yeah it does it does change your worldview and you do realize it's very very transient and um it does make you realise also that, so everybody that works, let's say, in the city or indeed anywhere else, you're right. You're very, very focused on the here and now yeah. and the future as well. Yeah. Yeah. But um, principally, it's the here and now. And you, I think it's important to take a step back yeah. and actually reflect upon what you're doing, whether you're enjoying it, yeah. um, what you want to do. I mean, I'm still waiting to grow up in many <laughs> respects. <laughs> And I think I think that's probably a good place to be rather yeah. than a bad place. Mine's a resistance movement. Oh, is it? <laughs> yeah. Mine's a yeah, a bedded down resistance movement. What are you res- What are you resisting? <laughs> probably that that thing about committing to, committing to a way of life that feels it's more difficult to reverse out of. Yeah. When you make some of those decisions, and yeah. do you know what I mean? Like absolutely. Um, I think I, I'm I'm constantly saying to especially you guys in the team, like everything is changeable. Mm. Everything is changeable. And everyone who's telling you something's absolute, then it's not true. There are no absolutes. No. Yeah, I they completely don't agree that. with you. They're just yeah. going with yeah. what they need to do in yeah. that moment. Yeah. Ask them in a week, they might feel differently. Mm. Ask them in a year, they'll regret having been so absolute. You know, I've just seen a lot of this transition in people's thinking. And um, I'm kind of I'm just I'm really interested into people's perception of things because mm. some people that you and I would know and Nadia as well, we, you know, we work with, they're very, very sure of the way the world works and the systems mm. in place. Mm. And we're also in a time now where all of those systems are being questioned economically from like political leaders, everything's being questioned and it's really interesting to see what can be changed and moved and, you know, it's the Steve Jobs ding on the, ding in the world, right, you know. I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. I think... This present moment in history is um, is scary for a lot of people, yeah. but it's also very, very exciting. And you're right, nothing, nothing at all is fixed. No. It, it is fungible, and it's yeah. very, it's shifting. Yeah. The tectonic plates are shifting at the moment. Yeah. I've got um, a very good friend who's a political scientist at Birkbeck, and he's quite well known. He's uh, called Eric Kaufman, and he, he's appeared on... Uh, Newsnight and various other programs like that, but we've had him in to present to asset managers, yeah. and they've found it absolutely fascinating because he he actually rather than talk about the people, he looks he he looks at the data, what happens 
amongst the population when certain other things happen. Yeah. And so he's an expert on Trump and popularism yeah. and all of those events which are shaping the world at the moment and how that might play out. That's really yeah, interesting. Very so interesting did he going. predict that Trump would be successful or did he not get involved in that? I'm trying to think. He, he, he's just recently written a book about it, actually. Uh, yeah, I mean, he explains why Trump yeah. was successful. That's, that's the important thing. And in, in terms of his messaging yeah. and the um, demographic that he was playing to. Completely. Yeah. I remember the day, it was, was it a Friday that it happened, uh, that um, the Brexit vote happened yes it was and i remember i called um a really nice lady she's a, a like a cio basically and um she was oh ben we didn't expect this and i said to her isn't this showing us how little we know about the rest of the country how much we're in this bubble of london operating yeah, yeah. and actually um these decisions they don't serve the country they just serve historically, who've managed to, you know, keep that power running. My mother said the same thing, actually. And, and, and I remember going out of London and driving up the M4 or whatever. Yeah. And I couldn't believe the number of Brexit posters, billboards yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Um, because I, too, live in a bubble in, in London, so yeah. I hadn't yeah. seen it. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. I think that was... Uh, there was a... I don't know, a movement, call it what you will, Yeah. Um, that was yeah, quite, um, well, obviously very, very strong. Do you feel lucky to have been um, born into the family in the time that you were born? Yeah, I do, I do. I think um, the sociologist once told me that everybody thinks that 20 years ago or 30 years ago was better than it is today. Yeah. And I think there is some truth. It'd be like that. Aristotle say that, or Plato probably, like probably. moaned about the kids of nowadays. Yeah, probably, yes, they probably did. <laughs> he probably did. However, I, the one thing I am quite pleased about is I was alive before the internet age yeah. and after. Yeah. Because I think if you're old and grey, yeah. um, you can remember that previous time. You can embrace the new technology, but at the same time, you, you can... Um, I, you can still look back fondly yeah. to the previous time, and you can you can measure the two. You can actually put them side by side. Yeah, pre and post. Yeah. See, when I was so I'm obviously 22. Yeah. So my first phone was like a Sony Ericsson flip up phone. Yeah. But it's not like a iPhone or Android nowadays where you can just surf the internet and you have three or four G. Mm. You couldn't go on the internet and used to Bluetooth each other songs or record your song off someone else's phone. Didn't it have WAP? Do you remember WAP? I think so, yeah. It was like an early version of internet, so you could maybe send an email like yeah. a text. Yeah. But it took a while. It took and so long. And no, yeah, and no one could afford it. Because if you it. went on the internet on That's your right. phone... It you was would, like 15 quid. Yeah, Bang. you would accidentally click yeah. on it and be like, oh, no, no. It's been on the internet for the past 20 yeah. minutes. Yeah, and hours. obviously now it's just completely changed. But from my perspective, I still remember when... I can remember not having a phone, obviously, when I was quite young. But yeah. having a phone when I was sort of... 12, 13 was just so different to the phones that are out here now and the way you connected with people was so different. Well, as a family, I remember having this debate, you know, about how young or how old are you or should you be before you got a phone? Yeah. I, I had a Nokia, which I absolutely loved. <laughs> and that was, you know, at the time, it was quite um, ahead 
and whatever happened to Nakia? Was that, well, it's come back recently. Sixty-two ten was it? That's the one. Yeah, really? Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting actually because I um, at, at a prior company I worked at, there were a lot of people who were twenty-something, and they were getting a little bit paranoid about um, you know the, all the Apple phones, etc. And some of them were actually going back to Nokia phones, yeah. which they could use just to phone up friends, yeah. and they knew they weren't being tracked. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Choice of phone for the drug dealer. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Is that right? <laughs> it is. It really is. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Maybe uh, I better not buy one of those. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to be confused with a drug dealer now. <laughs> so do you remember Thomas Dolby? Yes. Do you know he made a lot of his money, I think, in the late 90s with Nokia? They asked him to program the... Which is a small snippet from a classical piece of music. Right. I think he adapted it and changed it slightly. But he got a percentage on the chip that they used. And he's like, so do you, how much do you think? Like, it's like 0, 0, 0.01% or whatever of sales. So that would represent in that phone, a very small percentage of that phone's uh, profit. Yeah. But he said, now times that by like 950 billion phones that they made. <laughs> it's actually, it was actually quite a good deal. Fantastic. Um, so they made a whole bunch of phones, as you were saying there, kind of like the mm. 90s, 2000s, and then they held off. But they have come had a bit, a bit of resurgence. They I, got bought by another business, actually, didn't they? I think, I think they did. And Eno, I think, did the, didn't he do the Apple Mac sound? He did indeed. I think, I think that that's what he did. Yeah. yeah. Or, or did he do Windows? He did the Windows one, actually, I think. It was, it could have been Windows 95. Oh, God. This is, you, I've actually got, and I'll send it to you, I'll put a link in the podcast. I've got a link of all of the sounds yeah. um, of the ni- 80s and 90s. So they, they're iconic, tiny uh, sounds under five seconds long. This <laughs> <laughs> so I'll spend my weekend. And, <laughs> and uh, I'll, uh, I'll link it to you. It's phenomenal. You'll be like, I recognise that. It could be like a Zelda or it could be a Mario or yeah. it could be Sonic the Hedgehog. And that yeah. little sound, there's a little brain cell in Andrew. Somewhere there and it'll go off. Yeah. <laughs> it'll connect. It'll connect. E- Eno, in case you're wondering, he was a 90... You may not have heard of him. He's a 1970s musician. He worked with Brian Ferry, but he was very is, very yeah. avant-garde. But he's a record producer as well. Didn't he produce U2 and... He did Coldplay recently Coldplay. as well. Yeah, yeah. and you, yeah, I think you too. So I don't like yeah. you too, but yeah. Um, yeah, yeah Coldplay are okay. They're <laughs> not the best. But um, no. yeah, um, he, he's Another Green World is one of my favourite. Um, Same. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's that's, fantastic. That's brilliant. It's beautiful. It's brilliant. He's probably fed up with people saying that. Um, <laughs> ha- what is happiness to you and how do you measure it? Um, I think it's very difficult to measure, but I know it when I see it. <laughs> and so I think happiness for me is... The, the kids being happy, it's uh, being in a pleasing environment, doing, doing something to, well, doing I'm, something well. Yeah, I'm going to have to break those apart. So what was okay. it before children? Before children. That was your first re- response, right? Yeah. How did you measure it before children? Because a lot of people with children say that as their first response. Okay. What was it before kids? It just it was wild and back and alien. And <laughs> no, we had a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> so... I, God, sorry. Yeah, and we did, we did, yeah, um, I mean, my, my then girlfriend, now wife, the two of us, yeah, we, we, we travelled a lot, which was fantastic. Um, yeah, we, we had a lot of fun. Yeah. Was kind of like peace and quiet also part of happiness as well? Like, Yeah, I think, um, 
Well, certainly for me, I do, I do like the countryside. Not that I get out to it very often. <laughs> but, yeah, those green and rolling hills are, are something to be celebrated. I, I do enjoy getting yeah. out and walking in the countryside, etc. And that's always been the case. Yeah. Is, is writing as well? So I interrupted your last one. But it's, um, So after, after kids, what, what was the things that you really enjoyed? Just remind me of those other two. Um, so it would be, um, yeah, walking. I, I do very much like writing. I yeah. do it, you know, both professionally and also for pleasure. Yeah. I'm quite a big fan of theatre as well, so I do go to the theatre quite a lot. So storytelling is at the heart of all S- that. Storytelling know. is, yes. Yeah. Yes, I've, absolutely. Yeah. And what was your earliest memory of, like, a good storyteller? What was the first story that captured you? Do you mean a book or somebody actually reading it or... Um... Yeah, it's interesting because I think, um, yeah, the first person who re- read a book or they brought you something you hadn't chosen. Yeah, sometimes, you, you know, if you experience someone reading something, whether it's in a theatre or whether it's a family member at the end of your bed as you're falling asleep or whatever it may be, it's not necessarily a story you've chosen to read. What's your first memory of, oh, my God, this is really interesting or this is really getting compelling me? I, I think it would probably when I was in primary school, the teacher was reading, I think the book was Moonfleet. Oh, man, alive. I love that. And that was, yeah, I really enjoyed that. I cried at the end of that book. Did Did you? There's a line, and I've probably got this completely wrong, but doesn't the guy help the young kid and he gets swept away? I think you're right. And I I think think he says something like, take heart, lad, and he gives him a final push. Yeah. And he saves the kid, and he and I remember literally. I've got these problems. I remember literally bursting into tears, a big lump in my throat, and not being able to explain, and being really also embarrassed that a book had made me cry. It, the ultimate sacrifice. <laughs> he, he, yeah, yeah. But that 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 was um, wasn't that about smugglers and things like that at the beginning? Yes, it and was. And he, he went to yes, the coast and he saw the smugglers and he got yeah. involved with them. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah, so, so a little bit like Treasure Island, but different. But yeah, I remember that very very acutely. And yeah. that, was, uh, that was a great book. It was a great book. They loved that at my school. They, they put us, us onto that one. Um, what, uh, what else was like your earliest memory of, it kind of, let's say, kind of like creative emotion? I, I, again, I remember winning a writing prize in primary school. How did that feel? I, it was great. I think I got a platinum pen or something. <laughs> that was my prize. <laughs> so I did a lot of that. Creatively, I mean, moving on a little bit. I used to uh, review a lot of films when I was at university. Yeah. And um, that's an interesting experience because you go into a cinema (laughs) probably about 10 o'clock in the morning, so it feels very weird, and you're there with other people. I was obviously just representing the university, but there were professional reviewers there as well. And you get a cup of coffee and a biscuit, and... There's 10 of you at most and this huge empty cinema. Yeah. And you then watch this film. Yeah. And it, it is, after a while, you sort of zone in on the visuals and you forget that there's a very few people there. But it is quite an odd experience because then you emerge at 12 or whatever. Yes. <laughs> and there's daylight and it's, yeah. it can be qu- um, quite, what's the American word, discombobulating yeah. after you've done that. That was that was interesting because you would then go back and attempt to review it. I remember watching Mean Streets in that similar situation. This was in college. At ten, they started it, and then about you know lunchtime, we were all let out. And I was like, 
God, like I was just in that entire world, which I thought was a fantastic film, Mean Streets. It's one of Scorsese's earlier works, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's right. And um, you just, if they expected you to then be serious and professional about reviewing it, I was just so swept away with the story. I really can um, cut, off, cut, cut off disbelief. And I'm like, I don't care if, if the acting's right bad and stuff, you know, maybe not, but I can really just go with anything. I don't sit there trying to work out who's done what. I'm just going to be swept along with it. So what were some of your favourite films that you reviewed? Um, did they change your kind of worldview, any of them? Yeah, some of them did. I actually, well, I'm saying, I, I reviewed a few Bunuel films as well. So these were art house films. And those were, um, and Jean Cocteau yeah. as well. And these were very strange, surreal films. They did just they, jumped from scene to scene, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah. and that, that did, um, <laughs> that changed my worldview in the sense that it was something I'd never seen Completely. before. The rules of filmmaking don't apply to him or to many other of those. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, and Cocteau, actually I happened to be in the south of France a couple of years ago and there was a huge exhibition of Cocteau's work. Yeah. So his films, he did um, The Beauty and the Beast. and They were were amazing films actually, worth seeing, but there were all these posters, but there were were examples of his um, art, his writing. Yeah. He was a real polymath. He did a lot of the set design, like unusual sets, didn't he? He did, yeah. And they still like the visuals now, yeah. like compared to like um, set design for like Ridley Scott's early movies and mm. things like that, or like Blade Runner and that kind of thing. I remember yeah. people have said, you know, no one's invested themselves as much into um, their films holistically, some of those people. And they're strange films. They fit together, but they really are quite odd. That whole like um, filmmaking isn't just a Western way of making films. There's all these other interpretations and mm. like Hideo Nakata is he the Japanese guy who did The Ring? Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. When, I, when there are certain films you watch, and you think, oh my god, they're completely smashing down all these boundaries and things that you you didn't think they would mess with, and that that makes me feel kind of like you know. You should you should seek to be a kind of original, not not to impress anyone, but just seek your own originality to surprise mm. yourself about things. Is that something you do in your writing as well? Are you kind of constantly trying to push a, an endeavour of you know changing the way that writing, or are you just I, trying to tell your own story? With um, I I try and tell the story well or as yeah. well as I can, and variation is very important as well. I mean, there are lots of little rules, but. Short sentence followed by a longer sentence followed by a shorter sentence. Those sorts of rhythm, then, tricks. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah there, yes, there is a, a rhythmic element to it. Um, and narrative and story, yes, it's very, very important. You, uh, there's a certain approach to the way in which you um, put together an article, for example, and you do get that hammered into you. Because yeah. I started off as a, a journalist, so I was uh, very aware of that. But the, but the bottom line is the first paragraph should tell you absolutely everything you need to know and if you wish to you should you can carry on reading yeah but if you think about it in the digital age where less is more it's that one paragraph that you probably get yeah. on the website rather than the whole development yeah. and that's fine and you, you probably use something else to illustrate it so you would have the paragraph and then you would have the imagery, yeah. because imagery is all, and the imagery will illustrate, bring to life yeah. that paragraph. What's your kind of relationship with things like photography and, and imagery? So I'm, I'm not a photographer myself. My colleague is, 
But what I can say is that I appreciate good photography. I went to see the Don McCullen exhibition recently, which I don't know if you've seen, Ben, no. but it's absolutely stunning and heartbreaking because he charts the last 30 or 40 years going right the way back to um, the Vietnam War. Yeah. And it's just, it's a record of human suffering. Yeah. And it concludes with the destruction of Palmyra by ISIS. Wow. And there are before and after photographs of the two. And it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. But that's just a building, a very, very important building. It's the people's lives that he charts. And it's, it's, it's heartbreaking, absolutely yeah. heartbreaking. Yeah, I saw a James Natchway um, war photographer. Have you seen that documentary? I haven't seen, no, I haven't seen um, that. His stuff is, and you see the imagery of, you know, like a, uh, a house having been burnt down with people inside and you see everybody outside with their head in their hands. And you look at it and go, wow. And then you see the video he's attached to his camera as he approaches that lady on the ground, you know, collapsed on the ground, everyone around her, as he talks to them and explains what he's doing, as the photo's taken that you then see the iconic photo and then as he walks away. And it's like, how does he manage to do that? He obviously yeah. doesn't want to be doing these things. There's massive cognitive dissonance going on. You want to just allow this person peace. But you've also got to record the moment. And um, this little video camera he has on his, on his camera shows you how he gets these photos and it's like how he deals with it i don't know it's something incredible um and he's very deft at dealing with people's emotions and understanding if something's going to get out of control and then he just has like seconds to compose the shot get the shot and he walks out as well he doesn't just sit there like you see a lot of you know doofus with, with a little camera now just constantly taking photos on a stream you know yeah. He's over the old school, you know, film. He packages up the film, sends it back, hopes there's something in there. It's a really, yeah, really kind of, and it goes all the way through to an ex exhibition he's having in New York. And the, again, the difference between he is a, the darling of kind of New York and stuff like that, all the people coming up to him with their flutes of champagne and their dresses could not be further from what his majority yeah. of his life is. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's a really great... I think it's just called War Photographer, James Natchway, and it's just incredible. I, w I watched that and literally said, right, that's what I want to go and do. And I think, like, uh, two weeks before I was planning to go and leave and do it, um, someone exactly like me who wasn't a professional said they were going to go and do it and they were just shot through the head. Whereabouts? Where were they? I think they went to Kabul. Okay. So, yeah. It was shocking. He got off, you know, had a had a walk around, went to the wrong area, and then bang, he was in a gunfight before he knew it. <laughs> My mum went, do not go. Wow. I was like, that's fine, I, I won't. I don't know, you need to be, you know, so embedded as well in the people out there, the rhythms of these things, you know, the inside information, you need to be part of that network too. I don't think you can just pick up and go. Though some people have done that, I think, in their careers. They've just decided they want to be a war photographer. But I think it's, and, and how can you actually disconnect from it? And of course, a lot of, journalists, um, war journalists particularly, want to get involved or sometimes, I mean, they get co-opted. They can't bear to walk away from what they've just seen. Yeah. And there are quite a few examples of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's um, certainly a very exciting lifestyle and it's calls for, I mean, I, I like, do you know the 
um, politician, Rory Stewart. He must have yeah. heard of Rory Stewart. So he was, a, um, he was a soldier before he was a politician. Yeah. But he wrote a wonderful book about walking across Afghanistan in about 2002. He nearly got shot two or three times by various factions. But he had the advantage of talking, I think it's um, Farsi, Farsi and various other dialects um, from having spent some time in Iran and elsewhere. So he was, um, he, he could get by, I think. But yeah. I think that must have been quite, quite yeah, a journey. Would you reckon you could have done more correspondence? Have you ever been pulled that? Funnily enough, I did think about it, yeah. Really? And um, <laughs> it's ironic, isn't it? I ended up as a business journalist before I went into asset management. But I, yeah, no, I always thought I'd, I always fancied it, actually. And I, I was offered a job back in the 90s. I was offered a job in Beirut. Wow. And I nearly went. I had, I had this very strange interview in um, a very <laughs> sumptuous flat off Sloane Square yeah. um, by two Middle Eastern people who'd come over and they were setting up a new newspaper in Beirut and it was after the Troubles, so it, was, it had settled down a bit. And I thought, yeah, I've got to go for this. Wow. That'll be really exciting. And were you going to be a contributing or an editor? Or? Oh, yeah, an editor-writer. And editor, it was a business publication, so there was some sort of linkage. And my wife was, my then wife was up for it as well. She was? Yeah, <laughs> ish. Um, and then I, I read Brian Keenan's An Evil Cradling, which is all about, you know, being chained to a radiator and his, uh, for X number of years and John McCarthy, the journalist, sure. et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and it kind of it put me off <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. And but to be honest, I can't, I regret not doing it. I should have done it. I should have done that. I mean, you could have done it for a couple of years, right? And yeah. Just yeah. yeah. Do you feel as if the newspaper industry is just declining? I I read a stat the other day after I watched that movie, um, in the one that's based in Boston, the Boston newspaper oh, yeah, about the, the priest. Yeah. So I was watching it with my flatmates and I was just sat there thinking, like, no one from my age group ever buys a newspaper. And I looked it up and I think every year it makes a loss of, like, 10% each, lo each newspaper. So do you think in the future there won't be newspapers anymore? I think there's a high, very high probability of that. I, so yeah. I'm metaphorically in tears as I say this. Mm. I, think it's, I think it's awful, actually, because... Mm. I suppose the bottom line is people have to pay for these people to go out there and do their assignments. Um, some assignments, such as Watergate and others, this is a classic example that's yeah. often cited, it took them months tracking down, tracking down that money, yeah. um, obviously leading to the impeachment of Nixon. I don't think you could do it today because newspapers cannot afford to employ people to do that. And you see it in our industry, the financial services industry, but you see it in the newspaper industry as well. And so what we're all witnessing at the moment is just the aggregation of the same old, same old yeah. in, in many, many cases. I think on the brighter side, you're seeing some very, very good blogs which are written yeah. And yeah, the Huffington Post and other publications like that are, are promoting that. And I think good writing will always get out.
but I think it's quite difficult actually because it's all it's I wouldn't say it's debased but it's um, de minimis in terms of um, the amount of material that you can get and there's an awful lot of repetition that's a long-winded answer to your question but I do think yeah I think they probably will go unless people find another way of actually getting an income stream from them I, 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 I struggle to see how they'll survive there's a Greek data scientist, Andreas Antonopoulos, and he talks about this a lot. Um, he used the phrase skeuomorphic, which is, I think, the next iteration of something. Um, so a good example is, you know, you build a house and, you know, your last house was built out of wood. I give you carbon fibre and you build the same shape house. Whereas what you should be building is a house with the new properties. He talks about this to do with Bitcoin. He's like, everyone's using Bitcoin just to trade and give money to each other. But it, um, the concept of you know, blockchain and distributed ledger and all that kind of stuff, self-authenticated systems that don't need trust, mm. they can be used in many other different ways that people aren't using right now. Um, but they just use the next thing they, they remembered, which was, oh, well, money, then we'll use, money, use it for money. So if you think of like the pay model changing with print media and all those old businesses that are built on that, that obviously made a lot of money as well at some point. They're obviously, mm. you know, for many years they coined it and people did very well, but then they didn't adapt with the changing technology and the changing models. And you would hope, he basically says, anyone caught in a generation in an industry of skeuomorphism will always experience this kind of, everything's changing and nothing's, what can you rely upon? He said, but it's, yeah. it takes, it's going to take a few generations to get to the next phase. If you think yeah. of like the industrial revolution and how long that actually lasted before real change came in the form of say, like the internet being handed to, to everyone, there was a whole lot of industrial revolution years have gone past. Now we've got a whole range of, like we think, I think he made the comparison of when you got, when we got email. So most people, I got email in 94, I think it was line1.net. Do you remember that provider? I don't know. A lot of people got it in like 96, 97 because BT and all the others started to roll That's it out. sort of when we were beginning. Yeah, I was yeah. beginning to send stuff to and from the States around about that time. Yeah. AOL was already in the States in about, mm. I think, the nine, early 90s. And you had mm. CompuServe and you had all these yeah. other ones <clears throat> that were yeah. there. But yeah, by easily by the late 90s, majority of people had uh, you know, dial-up mo- modem or ASTL2 or something like that, you know. And so if you think then by 2005, it was ubiquitous and we all had it and we started having it on phones and things like that. When was the first iPhone? Was it 2005? 2005 or six, yeah. Was it? Yeah. So yeah, so that, that was enough for Apple to go into it at that point, even though the, everything that they even, even touchscreens have been available on other phones, they just made the best version of it and promoted the hell out of it and made it beautiful. You had 10 years and then you think of Bitcoin. Well, that happened in 2009, straight after the crash. Yep. Satoshi Nakamoto wrote its paper, and then boom, we're 10 years after that now. And people, you know, Bitcoin is ubiquitous. People understand what it is, but they're not, not everyone's got access to it, you know. In 10 years' time, all these other things will come to fruition, and well, we would have adopted and, and worked out the technology, and it would have changed, obviously, the landscape. But all I'm saying is <laughs> it's going to be fine. Yeah, there'll, oh, be, there'll be another version the of end, it. In it'll the be, end, yeah. It'll work better. There will definitely be a resurgence to people who like printed media. Mm. Like if there was a if there was a, a publication that had all original investigative journalism, like a Mark Bowden people, you know, who were like immersed themselves for years in something and they were writing about things, and it was only available in like a printed thing, I'd buy that. It'd be fascinating. I'd even like maybe the the artifact of keeping it, like a Vice magazine special edition or something, you know. 
I think I know, that's. I mean, that's a very that's very hopeful. I hope that does happen. But what worries me is the the fact that they belatedly introduce the paywalls. Yeah. And that I think so. The Telegraph has done that now, yeah. but the Guardian still doesn't. It looks for contributions. That's right. Wikipedia looks for contributions. Yeah. And I just think that people are so used to getting stuff for free. Yeah. It's yeah. really difficult to actually say, oh, by the way, can you shell out X amount a month, <laughs> and then we'll uh, we'll let you look at it. Yeah. I think I think that I think that is difficult. So I hope you're right. But yeah. <laughs> No, 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 you're right. There could be another version, which would be things like kind of micro uh, payments, mm. you know, or, um, you know, or the, I think the next thing that's going to come up is everyone wants a subscription service that automatically renews. Yes. And the reality is people don't like that because they don't trust their own ability to manage this. I mean, they've got, everyone's got about 50 passwords minimum. <laughs> How many subscriptions are you getting just on the day-to-day? If you had an automatic expiration, time bomb exp- uh, subscriptions, I think that would be people would be more up for that type of thing. I'd, I'd probably do Telegraph today if I knew that it expired in a week. I could just time bomb it, bang, yeah. and I'd read it for a week. That that's it. Yeah, that would be. That's you should suggest that. <laughs> <laughs> just, New business idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, right. Do you think you reconcile your? And we're coming close to our, an hour, so I'll just come through a couple of other key things yeah. I wanted to get to because I think I've learned we've learned a lot about you in terms of what you thought of, of work and your passions and your interests. But when I say your spiritual life, I don't mean anything like it, it can be a religious life. It can be anything you bring meaning, you know, mm. to that, if that makes sense. So do you think your spiritual life and your work life, your day-to-day life, are they in sync? Are they overlap enough? Or do you completely take off the work kind of cloak when you go home and you've got a, a new, you're a different person entirely in your home life? So all the things that your kind of ideals, the way you want mm. to act and perform and be in your best version of Andrew, mm. do you think that's present in your, in your day, day-to-day life as well? Work? Yeah, I, I, I would hope that that is the case. I would, I would hope that that is the case in terms of interaction with other people. Yeah. And I enjoy a good collegiate atmosphere amongst, you know, various co-workers i hate that phrase co-workers but it's um yeah so and i and do i have a spiritual dimension yes do most people yes i suspect so i think it was very rare if they don't and that is important as well that can be public or it can be very very private as well do you think someone like um trump has got a spiritual side what a great question (laughs) I suspect he thinks he has. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm sure, no, that's very flippant. Um, I'm sure he does. What I'm getting to is, so you and I have both worked, in fact, we've both worked in asset managers. Mm. You worked a little bit longer and a much more senior level than I ever reached. I got out fairly early. And I've worked with big financial companies. And we have worked with each other in terms of you've you know been a um a a, a client of mine as well and we know how big companies can be run and we know some of the tropes and all that kind of thing right have you found since you've you know set up your own business and you're consulting back to that industry that you can talk to people openly and honestly because i have thought over the last five years 
to, in my head, this is a, a, an argument in my head, to basically turn around and say, I'm not going to work with people who I can't be honest with and won't, if they want to just transact on one way and they're not interested in anything else, yeah. then I'll, I'll just drop that person. I'd rather get the money. My, you know, the dollars I want to get, as it were, I want to get it from, from people that I really um, honour, respect and want to work with and it's a pleasure. Like The money's actually not the real driver. It's being able to work with that type of person. That sounds like, you know, I run a company that doesn't make any money at all because you can't be like that, I guess, in business. But the lucky thing is we've got to a certain level where I think that the reason someone like Nadia and the other guys that are here with me, it's, it is to do well in, in business and to learn, but also the people we work with is so critical. Um, and this is a constant battle, by the way, like I say, in my mind to say, do we do this? Do we not do this? Is that something that you've experienced? What have you experienced? I have. I mean, I, I've, seen, I've seen it all. Um, I yeah. mean, asset managers, along with financial institutions generally, are, um, can be incredibly conservative and straight-laced and buttoned up. What I do think has happened, certainly over the last few years, that there's, things have become a little bit more relaxed there's less of a hierarchical approach. There's more of a collegiate approach. There's a lot of politics and asset management, but there's a lot of politics everywhere because mm. we are political creatures. Mm. That, we just are. We can't help it. It's part of our makeup, part of our DNA. But I think what I, what I see personally is, um, I don't know, a bit of a, a shifting landscape at the moment as new, younger people are coming into the industry, they're looking at it more critically, but also coming up with... They're seeing it through a, a, a different prism, I think. And I think that can only be healthy. So what kind of... Uh, so I guess let's talk about two values that I think mm. I've experienced and then the, the newer values coming in. Mm. So I think, just to call it like the lizard brain, it's fear-based mm. and it's scarcity-based. Mm. So... The fear-based thing is, what will people think of us as an institution if this is made public or if that type of thing is allowed to happen? Yeah. And that's the laced-up conservative. And the scarcity thing is this kind of growth fetish of if we get more money. So, like, someone t – uh, I, I said to somebody once, like, how do you – value the company like what do you talk about when, when i'm talking to people, people who are going to come work here and they said oh it's the three things in it how much aum assets under management how much money have you got how many offices around the world and how many people have you got mm. i was like none of those three tell me how good you are at managing my money no. at all but that's what they wanted to talk to people who are going to join them yeah and there's this and it's a very kind of human trait of scarcity of like we need to be around, and I understand where it comes from, but it's actually, we're in a more enlightened society, I think, where people can put other values first. So what do you think of the emerging values, if those have been moved away from? I, I mean, to your earlier point, yes. Yeah. Historically, it's, all, it's been about sizeism. That's it, really. Yeah, sizeism, yeah. I think the emerging values are to be supported and applauded, definitely. There is, there is a sea change. People want to see something different. People... Um, I mean, I look at my own kids, and they're very into ESG, although they wouldn't know it as ESG, but those sorts of values. What do they call it, then? They'll talk about climate change. They will talk about climate green. change. Uh, green, yeah, they Being do recycle. Yeah. yeah, And they will nag us, me and, me and my wife as well, if we're... If we offend in any way, <laughs> I can put it that if way. If you transgress. Yeah, if we trans transgress, exactly. So, uh, and I think that's good. I think that that's is fantastic. good. 
Yeah, I think I think that's a major issue yeah. that we all face, and I think it is. It's kind of ironic, actually, because the world at the moment seems to be so divided, yeah. and yet at the same time there are these huge challenges facing everyone Every, on the planet, exactly, yeah. and you're only going to address them if there's a sort of a, a, so there's concord yeah. and a united sense of purpose, and yeah. that's going to be very very well. It's proving to be very difficult. There's a great cartoon I saw. It's uh, a boat that's capsized, and the guys who are up in the air going, I always knew that end of the boat would sink. Yes. And it's like, <laughs> but we're all... Yeah. Captain exactly. hindsight. Exactly. <laughs> but, but sort of drilling down a little bit, Ben, I th- yeah, I do think there's been a lot of change in our industry. I think that... Um, I think the, the asset managers themselves have always been a very cerebral bunch, which is why... And they're nice to work with. It's yeah. fun working yeah, with asset managers. It, yeah. um, it's... Uh, the sales and the marketing people and the comms people, they're somewhat different. And again, you know, I've worked in all of those areas at one yeah. time or another. Um, they have a job to do. They have assets to raise, et cetera, et cetera. And I think possibly historically that's just been their single goal. But I think these things are changing as well. They're, they're changing for regulatory reasons, but they're also changing for personal reasons as well. Yeah. And again, I could say... In the past, there's been a lot of lip service to this, those sorts of more touchy-feely approaches, but it is getting better. It is improving. And not to remain negative, but I'm thinking like of like post-war kids growing up. Like it was very easy to look at people who'd served and at any level and achieved anything. They could have been the Spitfire pilot or the B-52 bomber pilot or something. And it's easy to have said, look what these people did, and they did it for you so you could enjoy this freedom. And there's kids who are growing up now who are questioning their parents. <laughs> I'm sure you're, you're, you've got good engagement with your children. This isn't happening. But there are a lot of kids who can turn and go, you've inher- you're giving, this is our inheritance. This hot <laughs> rock yeah. is what we're inheriting from you because of everything you guys did in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, et cetera. Fossil fuel burning and all that kind of, you know. Isn't that a funny... I, do you I, think that's true? Do you think there's yeah, an element I do. of that? Yeah, absolutely. But I think it was ever thus. <laughs> Because, <laughs> because the Spitfire pilot probably got a lot of prestige, I don't know, 1950. By the time the 60s came along, people couldn't give a damn. That's right. In fact, there was an anti-movie, yeah, of course, counterculture. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then if you think about the present day, yeah, yeah. Why, sh- why shouldn't they blame us? I mean, yeah. it's... Yeah. Um, we could have done better. We could have done better. We could have done more. And we could have done it earlier as well do you think that's just kind of hard-coded this kind of human scale understanding of memory and projection of the future Mm. do you think that's because i i i do you think that's endemic to just this could be the sixth mass (laughs) by the way i checked out the other five mass extinctions before i i I brought this one up but yeah people talk about the sixth mass extinction do you think that that's just how things might go that it is irrecoverable so, funnily enough, <laughs> Sorry to end on this that. is a really kind of bleak subject, isn't it? <laughs> but I have been having that thought, and I'm sure there are lots of other people on the planet. There's, there isn't a, sorry to invoke God, but there is no God-given reason why we should exist. Right. Um, and we certainly didn't once upon a time, yeah. and that may come again. I mean, it's, it's, it's scary stuff. It really yeah. is. I think I think it's really grounding. It's yeah, not scary absolutely. to me at all. It's really grounding. It just mm. shows you your place in time. Yeah. If you realise that, like, I don't know, three hundred 
uh, 230 million years ago, a trilobite managed to survive from an extinction to the next generation mm. of things growing up. You can, under that scale, you can suddenly um, see how you can emerge from a, the sea to a land mammal to whatever. But people don't ever see things on a day-to-day in that scale. They're so obsessed with that kind of human, a day-to-day familial scale. Mm. Um, I think it's really important to be able to zoom out and check that out. And I think that gives you, it's like, when you realise that that's the case, it it removes a lot of the fear in life, I think. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, it does, it does. But it's also, yes, there is... Read the origin of the species, and and that can tell you everything you really need to know about yeah. mass extinction. And there's been an awful lot of it. There's been more of that, yeah, almost than than new life. And I think when David Attenborough and people like that are actually warning about this yeah. potential cataclysm, yeah, they're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, oh, that doesn't also mean abandon responsibility. It just mm. means it removes this kind of obsession that was so important. Oh yes, yeah. You know, we're not. We're, we're not. not. We're just, we, yeah. we could just be a temporary blip. I think yeah. For, There's a very strong you know. chance yeah, there really that is. we're a, a virus about to be erased. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. It's true. And on that positive <laughs> note, thank you so much for going. <laughs> no. It's been really interesting to speak. If there's, um, I wanted to end on this for this series. So, is there something? Could be, uh, it could be a video, it could be a place in the world, it could be a, a piece of music, it could be a book. I imagine it might be. Um, is there something you would recommend that's given you great joy and pleasure over the last, say, couple of weeks, year, month? There's so many, actually. Well, let's pick um, the last month then. Well, I, I, I'll, um, I'll pick a book actually, and it's by a writer called Anthony Burgess. Oh, yeah. And he wrote an amazing novel called Earthly Powers. And I don't think it's been made into a film, and it should be. Yeah. It is just rollicking good fun. Yeah. And it's about a, um, a priest uh, and a, an individual, and the priest goes on to become very, very high up in the Roman Catholic Church. And it's got all that great stuff about religion yeah. and the clashing of the tectonic plates <laughs> when things aren't quite working out no it's a, it's a fantastic novel and it's got the uh, i think it's got the best opening line um of any novel i've read and now i'm going to try and remember it which was something like it was the afternoon of my 70th birthday oh. when i was in bed with my catamite when the archbishop called that's fantastic <laughs> Andrew, thank you so much for coming and talking to us. 